This podcast is brought to you by Amicus Attorney, developers of legal practice management software. Let Amicus help you run your practice so you can focus on what you do best, practice law. Visit amicusattorney.com and get started today. 2017 has seen no shortage of protesters marching in the streets, demanding equality and challenging the status quo. For people who were alive during the 1960s and 70s, however, it's nothing that they haven't seen or experienced before. In the August issue of the ABA Journal, we profile several movement lawyers from the 60s and 70s and ask what motivated them to take up their causes, as well as what advice they might give to today's aspiring social activists. I'm Victor Lee, Assistant Managing Editor for the ABA Journal. On today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'll be talking to Paul Harris. Paul co-founded the San Francisco Community Law Collective in 1970 to represent community groups and activists. During his career, he has represented the likes of Huey Newton, anti-draft activist Leonard McNeil, and fellow movement lawyer Stephen Bingham. Paul is a former president of the National Lawyers Guild and is the author of the book Black Rage Confronts the Law. Welcome to the show, Paul. Thank you very much. So could you tell us a little bit about your background? I mean, I I went into a little bit in your bio, but how specifically did you get involved with radical causes? Well, I was in Berkeley undergraduate in the 60s. I came from a left-wing family that had been very active in the civil rights movement, and my mother and father had been labor organizers. So it was pretty natural of me to get involved in the civil rights movement. I got arrested a couple times in nonviolent sit-ins as an undergraduate, and then I went to Berkeley Law School to hopefully change the world for the better. What made you decide to you know, continue down that path as a lawyer? Because, I mean, obviously you could have gone in many different directions after getting your J.D. Uh, there's two reasons. One, I wanted to teach also, especially as I got older, and I knew that as a lawyer I could do part-time teaching. And secondly, in the United States, more than any other country in the world, lawyers play a significant role in social movements. If you think about social issues over history, whether it's uh, abortion law, whether it's segregation, whether it's draft law, all those social issues end up in the courts and often end up going to the Supreme Court. But they often end up in trial courts, in communities, and that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to represent community people on the ground at the present moment in every kind of important social issue. So to follow up on that then, I remember talking to you about the San Francisco Community Law Collective, and you told me that all the employees were paid equally, regardless of whether or not you were a lawyer or a secretary or anything else. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your colleagues came up with that model, and why did you decide to do it that way? Because it was consistent with our political beliefs. We believed that whether you had a bar card or didn't have a bar card did not define your value to the law office. So lawyers and what we called legal workers who were really legal secretaries who also did things like client interviewing and took part in the whole political strategy and legal strategy of our office were all considered equal. If you were a permanent member of the law collective, whether you had a bar card or not, you were equal partner. You had equal salaries and you had equal decision-making power. And for our community law collective, that was very crucial because the two lawyers 
who set up the firm, myself and Zach's, were committed to building a multiracial law collective. So our first two secretaries and the third lawyer were all people, people of color, people who, two of them who came from the community itself. So it was very important that we were all equal in reality. And what kind of cases did you handle during your time with the collective? I became a trial lawyer primarily, a criminal trial lawyer. My partner, Stan Zacks, had the strategy of building a financial base based on personal injury. So when we, we represented community groups like the Free Clinic, like the Labor Caucus, like the Native American Center, we represented them for free. But we told them when they had members who had car accidents, for example, instead of taking those cases downtown, they should bring them to us. And 80% of our money was based on personal injury, even though it was probably only 30 or 40% of our cases. And then we were house counsel for community groups, advising them how to stay out of trouble and if they got into trouble, representing them. Gotcha. So let me ask about some of your specific cases. Now, let's start with Leonard McNeil. He might not be the biggest name, especially to people today. So can you talk a little about who he was and why he was important? Leonard McNeil was a gigantic case here. He was a six foot five, 240-pound All-American football player who was blacklisted from the NFL after he was drafted because the FBI incorrectly said that he was a Black Panther. Uh, he had been active at Fresno State in the Civil Rights Movement. He was not a Black Panther. And when I say blackballed, he was actually, after being drafted as a very high draft choice by the Philadelphia Eagles, he was uh, not allowed to practice and he was kicked off the team. He fled to Canada because he was drafted, and a few years later he came back and eventually was charged with failure to report for induction during the Vietnam War. It was considered a major case by the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Selective Service. And we eventually went to trial. We won the case. Leonard McNeil went on to be mayor of San Pablo, which is one of the little cities here in the Bay Area. And he went on to work with the American Friends doing a significant peace advocacy. And how did you get that case? I was an expert in draft law. The Vietnam War was raging during the time I was in law school, and we made ourselves, a few of us at the law school, we studied draft law, selective service law, military law, and became experts in that field. And then I clerked for a federal judge my first year out of law school at a time when a very important uh, selective service cases were being decided upon in federal court. For example, we ruled that if you burned your draft card, you could not be drafted because you burned your draft card. Uh, we ruled that you had to be drafted by the selective service board that has jurisdiction over your community. A number of important decisions. So I was known in the Bay Area and to some extent nationally as an expert in selective service law and therefore Leonard came to me 
uh, also because of the political nature of our law collective. All right, now let's talk about Huey Newton. Obviously, he's one of the most colorful and controversial figures in American history. How did you get involved defending him? Well, Huey Newton was a chairperson of the Black Panther Party. I had done a lot of community work as an undergraduate in the black community and then also in law school. So I had met Huey early in his career as uh, head of the Black Panther Party. We hit it off well. Uh, He fled to Cuba to avoid a couple charges in the 1970s, and I went to Cuba and helped bring him back to the United States when he decided he wanted to come back. And then I was one of two lawyers who defended him on a felony assault charge and, to a lesser degree, on a murder charge. Right. I think I remember you telling me, I think he said that he'd rather live the rest of his life in jail than die in exile away from his home country. Exactly. Yes, he did. When I met with him and his wife in Cuba, he said that he loved Cuba. He had been treated very well. They had offered him a teaching position, but he wanted to work with the people, so he had worked in a factory, and he was enjoying being in Cuba, but he wanted to be back in the United States. And he, I told him that his chances of being convicted were very high. I think I told him that it was, in one case, it was 90%. And he said, I would rather be in prison in my home country than die in exile. However, he came back, and I was wrong about that 90%. He was acquitted. What were some of your memories of that trial? That trial was uh, incredibly tense. I mean, Huey was uh, an icon in the Bay Area. He was loved and hated. The courtroom was filled with people all the time. Uh, The police were very, very hostile. The case, there was tension every day. It went on for six long weeks. And when he was acquitted, the courtroom burst into applause, and Huey gave a speech to the judge about the unfairness of the trial that went on for about 20 minutes. So it was a very dramatic time. And Huey was one of the most, not only charismatic, but brilliant. And I don't use that word often. He had a brilliant mind. Unfortunately, in his later years, drugs and alcohol dragged him down, uh, made him a, uh, just dragged him down and ended up causing him to be killed by a dope dealer. It was very, very sad. So before we get to our next question, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. These days, law firms need to do more with less. Making this happen requires efficient, cost-effective tools that work the way you do. Available as a desktop or cloud solution, Amicus Attorney Practice Management Software improves the organization of your firm and drives your bottom line. Visit amicusattorney.com to discover how you can join the thousands of lawyers who rely on Amicus every day to run their practices. And we're back. We're here with Paul Harris talking about his career as a movement lawyer in the 60s and 70s and also asking him about what he thinks of what's going on today with regards to the social unrest and the increased activism in light of Donald Trump's election as president. So, Paul, turning to today, how would you compare 2017 to the late 60s and 70s in terms of social and political unrest? 
people are much more involved now, particularly once Trump was elected president. In my analysis, George Bush and the Cheney administration, except for the area of immigration, did more to destroy America than anything Donald Trump's administration has done. Yet we could not uh, develop a strong resistance because Bush and Cheney were part of the normal political process. Trump is so outrageous that you have this tremendous resistance around the country from people who have not been politically involved. Um, other things I see that are different, Black Lives Matter is a crucial social movement. In the late 60s and the early 70s, when I started practicing, uh, white people still believed in their vast majority that black people were not oppressed in this country. They still believed that police were not brutalizing the community. In fact, the Black Panther Party and Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, it was called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, and it got its start going around the community when there was a police arrest of black people, they would arrive on the scene and make sure that with their standing there with their guns in their law book, Huey would stand there because he had a year of law school with his gun and his law book and make sure that the police were acting properly. So the police issue has been with us for hundreds of years, but it's only in the last few years and with the advent of people taking photographs and video on the scene that white people have begun to realize the kind of oppression and danger that black people face. So talk to me a little bit about guerrilla law and that's guerrilla like guerrilla warfare not Magilla guerrilla. According to the website the center uh, attempts to analyze how the law perpetuates injustice and how we can merge theory and practice to combat social inequity and to alleviate individual suffering. I also remember you saying that the center was also there to help mold the next generation of movement lawyers. Could you talk a little bit about the center and how it's doing both of these things, in alleviating individual suffering and preparing the next batch of movement lawyers? Well, the Center for Guerrilla Law is really just our website at this point. We're not functioning because of a disability, my own disability, some Ill illness of some of the other attorneys. So we're not taking cases. But I've been an adjunct faculty member at uh, Golden Gate University, uh, University of San Francisco, and New College Public Interest Law School for many, many years. I taught a course called Guerrilla Law, Guerrilla Lawyering, and the, the basis of that course was to teach young lawyers, one, to dignify their client in and out of the courtroom, two, to demystify the law, Three, to delegitimize the law by pointing out that it's not based on eternal principles, but that it's based on the social context of the time. Another principle is to build power, building power of community groups and building power in the courtroom in order to create breathing space for social movements and how to win a case. So those were the principles of guerrilla lawyering, and I called it guerrilla lawyering because guerrillas throughout history, from the American Revolution, uh, through the Cuban Revolution, through the National Liberation Front in Vietnam, have less 
support, less uh, money, less arms, less power than the people they're fighting against. And we as guerrilla lawyers in the United States, even though we have less power than the state, we are able to win cases and we're able to create social change. That's why I call it guerrilla lawyering. In my book, Black Rage Confronts the Law, tries to explain how to use guerrilla lawyering in the real world and in the real courtroom. This is not just theory, but how I stress with my students, and I'm mentoring students now, how you use these principles to win cases and to empower your clients. What do you think, just having you know, you know been around lawyers for so long, having tried so many cases, having been around students, what do you think is something that law school prepares them very well for? And what do you think is something that maybe law school doesn't prepare them very well for as far as, you know, going out in the real world, applying their skills, you know, representing their clients, winning cases? First, let me say that law schools have progressed tremendously since I went to Berkeley Law School in the late 60s. At that time, there was no clinical law programs. We had to fight to get clinical law programs. Uh, it was mainly theory, not practice. Law schools have done a really good job, particularly uh, I've been impressed with the uh, University of San Francisco Law School here in providing real clinics in all kinds of areas, immigration law, environmental law clinics, uh, legal aid clinics, criminal law clinics. So students are getting a uh, taste of reality. But law schools mainly teach how to read cases and how to research law. That's what their main thing is. And they're also limited by the need to prepare students for the bar exam. The bar exam has no rational relationship with becoming a good lawyer. Uh, yet in a state like California, uh, over 50% of the people who take it fail it the first time. It's a tremendous burden on people, and it's a tremendous burden on law schools. What about for tuition? Because I remember we were talking about this earlier. What impact does you know the skyrocketing tuition have on a lawyer's ability to you know do something similar to what you did? I mean, obviously having so much debt, needing to pay it off, you know, kind of creates an urgent need to go into private practice, join a big firm, make a lot of money, pay off their loans as quickly as possible. What impact does that have as far as like molding the next generation? You just articulated it very well. It pushes students who have debt of well over $100,000 to take uh, non-social justice jobs and to take jobs where finances become their major consideration. And the danger of this, Victor, is the dynamics of law practice and the financial pressures push students away from the idealism that they came to law school with. So after five years working in a firm where finances are the main consideration, it's very, very difficult for students to start practicing social justice law. The whole dynamic of law practice pushes people to practice law in a conservative manner. And to wrap things up, I wanted to know what advice would you give to a lawyer, you know, who you know is aspiring to be to carve out a similar career path to you and some of the other people from the 60s and 70s. What what advice would you give them as they're starting out their careers? 
Well, poor people don't need dumb lawyers. That was an article I wrote. And by that, I mean you need to study your craft. While in law school, you need to become better than the big corporate lawyers. You need to be better than the big government lawyers. That's one thing. Two, you need to create ties with a community of peers, whether it's the National Lawyers Guild or some other organization. You have to have people who have the same commitment and general view of social change that you have, because law can be very isolating and very alienating. Uh, you know lawyers have a high, high percentage of ulcers, of alcoholism, of abusive drugs, and part of that comes from the isolating, alienating, and the pressure of law practice. So you've got to find people who think like you and make a commitment to be part of some kind of group. Excellent. Well, that's all I have for you, Paul. Thanks again for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And for all our listeners out there, if they would like to contact you, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way is through my email, which is gorillalaw at earthlink.net. That's gorilla as in Che Guevara, not King Kong. It's spelled G U E R R I. L-L-A-L-A-W, Law at earthlink.net. Uh, I'll respond to all emails. And secondly, I'd encourage people to buy my book, either used or new. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Black Rage Confronts the Law, NYU Press. Thanks again for joining us, Paul. I'm Victor Lee of the ABA Journal. And if you liked what you heard today, please find us and rate us on iTunes. In the meantime, you've been listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered. Victor Lee signing off.